You're listening to a sermon delivered at First Family Church. For more information and sermons, visit our website at firstfamily.church. This is a messianic psalm that actually speaks ultimately of Christ our Savior about his crucifixion, which is why I think it does a beautiful job, a remarkable job of, of explaining for us and picturing for us the terrible side of the cross along with the beautiful side of the cross. This is Psalm 22. It's a messianic or prophetic psalm. David's in the present view. Christ is in the prophetic view, which means this. We read this with David. um, We read through David to Christ. So we're going to read it that way. We're going to find things in here. Oh, I I can um, think about maybe a time when that may have happened to David. You're going to read some phrases when you're going to be like, man, when did that happen to David? You may find that that wasn't even true of his life in a physical, literal way. It's a figurative use of language to describe his distresses, but it's actually very specific about Christ. So this is going to be a beautiful psalm. It's often called the Psalm of the Cross. And we're going to see just exactly uh, why the cross is such a terrible but beautiful thing this morning. So let's read together, beginning in Psalm 22. Can we? Let me just kind of show you how it's broken up on a larger scale. The terrible aspect of the cross is seen in the first 21 verses. And I think those first 21 verses are best kind of understood with three key words. You might want to circle them now. The word yet in verse 3, the word yet in verse 9, and then the word but, I believe it is verse 18. Excuse me, verse 19. You might say there's two yets and a but. that kind of make up the first 21 verses. And that's kind of how we're going to get a handle on it. David describes a negative, distressing situation. Yet, here's the Lord's faithfulness. He describes another one. Yet, here's the Lord's faithfulness. He describes even another one. But, here's the Lord's faithfulness. And then that leads us to the the beautiful aspect of the cross in which we see because God did hear his cry, he ultimately did answer, David breaks out in an incredible amount of praise to God. We're going to look at that in the last what, 11 or so verses, 22 through 31. So just kind of keep that in mind. Let's analyze the first section, can we? Each of these sections, I think, has three uh, parts to it. I'll walk you through them, and we won't take a long time here. As I do, if you have questions, be sure to text them in. The number's in your worship folder. I'll take a couple of questions live in the service, if we can, once we're through with the text. And then this morning, I have one for you. You ready for that? Oh, you're not smiling now, are you? No, I'm just kidding you. Let's dig into Psalm 22, can we? David writes, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, immediately there, who are you thinking of, David or Christ? Christ. These are the exact words Christ uttered from the cross. So that alone points to the messianic nature of this psalm. Jesus referred back to it, indicating for us this psalm was about him. This is a thousand years before Christ. Yet the Holy Spirit inspired David to to write about something that would happen way in the future. And by the way, I'll, I'll, I'll mention this now, sort of later. There is a good bit of crucifixion language in this psalm. In that historical time period of the Jews, stoning was the method of execution, not crucifixion. In fact, it was the Romans who invented crucifixion, not the Jewish nation. And yet David here actually writes very specifically about crucifixion elements. So... It's a clear, prophetic, and often poetic view of Christ's Christ's death for us. 
He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? You began already to sense the terrible nature of the cross. This forsaken feeling that David has, and I think that Christ uttered from God. He says, my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. And I think it's at this point we need to make some very clear understanding of something. The reason the cross is terrible in, its, in, in the most significant way is this, that for three hours, God was silent. Now, to be most correct, we would say that the cross is terrible temporarily. When? For three hours, when Jesus uttered these words, penned by David at some point in one of his runs, perhaps when he was alone and felt forsaken. Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The real terribleness of the cross is that in some mysterious way, for three hours, God the Father pours out His wrath against sin, not on sinners who deserve it, but on His Son who is sinless. I will not be able to explain to you the full magnitude or measure of that. Theologically, practically, humanly, it's beyond my ability to comprehend and explain. I can get to a certain level with you theologically, but at a certain point I think it breaks down for all of us. How does that occur? How does God pour His wrath out on His Son? How does God feel forsaken by Himself? And There's a lot of questions you can ask there. So I need you to be okay with the fact that you're swimming in waters that are overwhelming. You're grappling and wrestling with truths that are hard to comprehend. Don't run from those, though. Be willing to wrestle with them. Because it's in those very truths that we see God in all of His greatness and majesty and sovereignty. I admit, they're not easy to handle. But this psalm does not start out with just how difficult it is that that man's in their predicament. This psalm starts out with the fact that That David, yes, initially, but Christ ultimately felt forsaken by the Father. That's a terrible thing. And it happened precisely because, as verse 3 says, watch this next phrase. Because yet you are holy. Now, Now watch this, church. This is exactly why God was silent. Did you know that? As he poured out his wrath against sin, he did forsake his son temporarily. He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. And yet, in that, it wasn't that God was afraid of our sin. He actually dealt with it, and yet he wasn't tainted by it. So I say this, God's not timid of our sin. He's not, oh, I can't look at that. God looks at sin every day. Did you know that? And he, he has dealt with it once for all on the cross, by the way. So I'm not sure I buy into the whole idea that God turns away, he can't look at sin. What do you think God sees every day as he rules from heaven? <laughs> he sees sin, doesn't he? So in some way we say God isn't tainted by sin, and yet he's not timid to deal with it. And this is what the cross is. It's God's incredible sovereign strength to deal with our sin without being spotted or tainted by it. His holiness drives both of those. Church, listen to me. His holiness drives both of those. His holiness is what drives him to deal with sin. Sinners cannot stand in his presence without an advocate, an atonement. Jesus is that. 
And yet it's his holiness that drives him to actually make him who knew no sin to be sin for us. So if you ever wonder why did God seem silent and why was he silent for three hours? It's because he is holy. But what you'll find in these next few verses is that his holiness has been the very foundation for his actions in the past. Here David writes that it's because he's holy that he's enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted, they trusted, you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. There's this sense in, this, in these first opening five verses that, that David is writing in his present tense and prophetically about Christ. He senses this forsakenness. But he knows deep down God will be faithful. Though his holiness drives him to deal with sin, that very fact that he'll deal with sin means that God will deliver them. So you have to kind of hold both of these ideas and just kind of balance them. It's God in all of his holiness dealing with sin and in dealing with that very sin, being faithful to rescue his people. That's what he did in the past. He was faithful to his character, his holy nature. He goes on in verse 6 to describe how man is now loud. I think this is an interesting contrast. If the cross is terrible, first of all, because God was silent, the cross is also terrible because here man is loud, or at least they seem loud. David writes of his own situation, I am a worm and not a man. I'm scorned by mankind, despised by the people. All who seek me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. They say, let him deliver him. Let him rescue him for he delights in him. I mean, your mind goes to Matthew 27, doesn't it? As the crowds are ridiculing Jesus. Hey, you think you can save others. Can you save yourself? And they mock and they ridicule the Lord. David says here, that place of the cross, yes, when God seems silent, it's also terrible because that's where man seems loud. Verse 9, though, he says, yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breast. On you I was cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near and there is none to help. What's he doing here? He's contrasting, watch this now church, he's contrasting what appears to be a helpless situation with what really is a helpless situation. Now let's just be honest. When folks mock us, when they're really killing us, in this case, when they're really killing David or they were mocking the Lord, as this psalm ultimately is fulfilled, when they're ridiculing, though we sense we're helpless, we sense we're being in a tough place, we're really not helpless. There's a sense in which there's some things we can do. But when you're a baby and you're just born and you can do nothing, that's real helplessness, isn't it? And what does David say here? He says, you were there for me. At the beginning, I trusted you when I, all I could do was be at my mother's breast. When I was fresh out of the womb, cast from birth, you've been my God. You took care of me in moments when I could do nothing but depend on other people. So I know you'll take care of me now. We just had our fourth grandchild. Matt and Bethany gave birth and uh, little Bryce McConnell. He's not even two weeks old yet. I was over there yesterday and he's just laying there. Um, and he's still stretching. You know, he's not even fully stretched out yet. He's, he's still going to curl up you know, in that position again. And, and he's just laying there. He, he actually can do nothing. You know that? 
I mean, there's some movements. I guess he can cry and he can poop and those kind of things. Yeah, they do that. But I mean, technically, no matter what I say to Bryce, he's not going to respond. It's like, oh, Papa, I got that. Yeah, I'll take care of it. He needs help all the time, right? That's just a little baby. He's not even a week or two old yet. He's totally dependent upon his parents. David says, that's how you have been for me, God. I have been totally dependent on you from my birth. So though right now man seems loud, if I could trust you then, I can trust you now. In one sense, the beginning part of this chapter speaks to us about somewhat of a historical nature of God's salvation, how he delivered Israel in the past. And so David kind of leans on the historical aspect of that. Here in 6 through, I guess, 11, there's more of a personal nature to it. You notice that? He talks about his own life from birth. and just So God's been historically faithful. God's been personally faithful. And in this next section, I'm most intrigued by this because it, it seems to have an, a legal aspect to it. Now, follow me, church. There's some words here used in the Hebrew language that, that I think prophetically speak to things that happened at the crucifixion. And there's some words that are given that, that I think speak to a certain rulers of that time. For instance, you see the beginning word, many bulls encompass me. Now, why would David write about bulls? Why would he write about the bulls of Bashan that surround him? Why would he say that their mouths are like a ravening and roaring lion? Later, he talks about dogs. What's going on here? Well, leaders in that time frame often were referred to as a bull to symbolize their strength, their prowess, their power. The bulls of Bashan were especially noted for their strength because they were raised in a very fertile area across from Jordan. So some of the best cattle, some of the best bulls were raised in that area, the strongest, the mightiest. I think what David's doing here is he's not just saying, okay, God, you have historically been faithful to our people. And he's not just saying, okay, God, you've been personally faithful to me. He's saying, God, you're going to be faithful now even when my enemies, my legal official enemies, countries and other people who want to take me out, when they're surrounding me and want to murder me, I know you'll be faithful to me. He talks about the bulls. The lions. He says, I'm poured out like water. Notice how he describes times in his life when he's been but a step away from death. I'm poured out like water. My bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It's melted within my breast. You'd be hard-pressed to find a time in David's life when this actually happened physically. You read on in verse 15, how his strength is dried up. His tongue sticks to his jaws. In other words, you may be hard-pressed to say, when, when did David experience thirst at this level? Or physical uh, maladies within his bones that would be, uh, fit this. He's probably using figurative language that actually better applies to the crucifixion. This is the description of a man or a woman being crucified. They hang there. They can't breathe. They see their bones gradually being disjointed. Their mouths are open a lot. Dryness sets in. They become very thirsty. The sense of suffocation becomes overwhelming. And hour after hour after hour, their heart begins to melt. Their bones are out of joint. They long for water. Their tongue sticks to their jaws. 
But notice what David says about this very um, despicable me kind of predicament. And this, again, is a concept that you need to kind of wrestle with. He says, you lay me in the dust of death. I find this starkly intriguing. That David's describing some kind of moment, yes, in his present tense, but no doubt prophetic, in which he feels like he's but a step from death. And yet he attributes that and does not discount God's sovereign providence by saying, you lay me in the dust of death. That's incredible trust, isn't it? That God's not far away or removed. He's actually in control, even in times when we feel like we're just a step away from death. He describes it further. Dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. Look at this description language here. They've pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. And perhaps the most specific one in the chapter, they divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Matthew 27 is just inscribed on these verses, isn't it? What does verse 19 say? Here's the third key word of this first section. But you, O Lord. So when David was historically in trouble, personally in trouble, even legally in trouble, when his enemies were coming after him to take him out, he says, Lord, do not be far off. You are my help. Come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword. That's a a kind of a a legal word there. Sword kind of refers to that point of, of execution. It's an emperor's or a ruler's main weapon. It's a sign of authority. And he's saying here, Lord, deliver my soul from that sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. By the way, this is an exact quote that Paul used later. Do you know that? I think in one of the pastoral epistles, Paul says he was saved or rescued from the mouth of the lion. And here's what some commentators think, and I would tend to be in this group. This, is very, this very well could be a prophetic mention of the Roman government, of the Romans who crucified Christ, they were often referred to as the lion. Paul may have used that kind of like a coded word to describe Rome, the lion. Could this be the Holy Spirit inspiring David to mention this and to use the lion as a reference to what the Romans would one day do, one day do when they would crucify Jesus Christ? You've rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. So David here is making a clear case that Legally, personally, historically, God has always been faithful. But in those moments when we, when we need that, we often feel like we're forsaken. Those three hours on the cross. We, God, where are you? You seem distant and silent. Are you listening? This is what Jesus felt on the cross as well. And this describes for us the terrible nature of the cross. God was silent. Man was loud, and his enemies were murderous. Interestingly, though, verse 22 jumps right into a sense in which apparently the three hours is up. Do you sense this in verse 22? And David immediately says, I will tell of your name to my brother. So we have to make this assumption. Apparently between 21 and 22, deliverance occurs to some degree. God actually does help. God actually does hear. So what David was sensing, what he was thinking, what he seemed to be thinking and wondering actually wasn't the real deal. It had seemed that way at the moment. It was temporary terror. 
but it's forever faithfulness. He now describes it in verse 22. I will tell of your name to my brothers. Everything he said about the, the two yets and the but, God came through. And he describes this, this telling of God's name. First of all, he says, I'll do that in the midst of the congregation. I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. You offspring of Jacob, glorify him. Stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. Now what's happening here is David is being quite personal and communal with his fellow Israelites. Listen very carefully, church. This beginning point of phrase would also, again, kind of refer back to David's own personal understanding of how God has saved him. He's using words that would describe the, the people of Israel, his fellow Jews, offspring of Jacob, offspring of Israel. Look what he says in 25. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. Speaking of that assembly that would gather of God's people. My vows I perform before those who fear him, ones like him, ones who are in this faith family. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. David is quick to recognize something first, that God's saving work, God's rescue of him was deeply personal and deeply communal. There's something to be said for what God does in the hearts of people, in the lives of people. And then when we're around those kinds of people, it's a glorious moment, isn't it? When we worship together, the congregation, the assembly, what I love is that that salvation, which is one of the reasons the cross is beautiful, because we see God's salvation clearly being displayed here. But watch this. It is not just personal and communion, communal. That's not the only kind of salvation accomplished. It's also global. Look at the next set of verses. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations shall worship before you. Here I think is a, a beautiful turning point. Israel sees God's work on their behalf. David sees it happening. God is rescuing us. But watch this. It's not just for Israel. It's not just for that believing initial community of Jews. It's for the ends of the earth. God's work is a global work, church. By the way, it's always been a global work. Need your ears wide open, your eyes spot on, because I want to share some things with you. Sometimes in the current, I don't want to call it phase of Christianity, but in the current realm, we get the impression that, you know, well, we want to go and tell and want to be sent, and that's, but you know, it's always been God's heart to gather around the throne of people from every nation, language, tribe, and tongue. God has always been a missionary sending God. It started with Abraham. And I think it's very important that we root our understanding in the mission of the church. Watch this. To root that in the passion of God. It's not a new idea that God is a sending God. Or that God is a reaching God. Or that God is a missionary God. It has always been his heart. Israel was a sending uh, light kind of community. Now in their culture, to be quite frank with you, it was more of a come and see culture. The idea was for them to have a special relationship with Yahweh. To build a temple. And they would invite the nations. And the nations would watch and see. And so many Gentiles, many pagans, as they would watch God work came into the family of Israel. In our culture, 
Since Christ's death, there is no temple. Who is the temple? You are. You're the temple of the Holy Spirit. He lives in us. The church is a a collection. We're a living temple of living stones, Peter says. Now watch this. It is not so much more now a come and see. It's more of a go and tell. And so we take Christ everywhere we go. And so we mingle in with the nations. We live in all parts of the globe. Why? So that God's heart for the nations continues. We didn't just kind of discover this. It's not something we thought of. God has always been a missionary sending God. Amen. His heart's always been for the globe. I love this portion of this chapter. The tendency is to to kind of put this on the current level. The tendency is sometimes when you see how God has saved you personally or those close to you, to kind of let it stay there. I think that's spiritual racism. Like, man, I'm glad the gospel came to me, but I'm not worried about anybody else. I'm glad I heard, but good luck if you think they're going to hear. I mean, can we just say that we should be so thankful that we've heard and we should pray for workers, laborers, who would go into the harvest so that all can hear. Amen, church? So I'm so thankful there's over 70 of you who are going on short-term mission trips this year. There are two couples waiting to go live in other parts of the globe for the sake of the gospel. Behind those two couples, there's two other individuals who are waiting to be sent by this church. There's currently some on the field from this church. Those are in addition to other partners we have, as well as other organizations that we partner with. good portion of our budget, what you give every single week, goes for this purpose right here. And for that, I'm just so thankful and humbled that we're not just always thinking about what should happen here, but we're asking, what can we do there? Because I am glad we heard, aren't you? I mean, can we just admit the communal personal aspect is good? Man, our hearts will live forever. Let's, let's let this drive praise from us. But it doesn't stop with us. Amen, church? And as Jesus said, as the Father hath sent him, even so send I you. Now, the point of the Great Commission isn't sending. I'll admit that to you. It's a participle. It's an assumed fact. The point of the Great Commission is to make disciples. But we are all going somewhere. (laughs) The Akins are going somewhere far away, and you may be going somewhere close. But let's be honest. Everybody's going somewhere. Amen? So wherever you're going, here's the key. Make disciples because God wants his name known and remembered across the whole earth for nations to worship him. Why? Because kingship, verse 28 says, belongs to the Lord. And he rules over the nations. So suddenly we begin to see that at the cross. Here's what's so beautiful. Yes, God's salvation was accomplished, but God's kingdom was affirmed. Now notice what I said there. It wasn't announced. When did God's kingdom get announced? When Jesus came, right? He said, the kingdom of God is near you. But yet the kingdom is not fully consummated yet. When does that happen? When Christ returns. So what's going on at the, at the cross? when he says that kingship belongs to the Lord. He rules over the nations. Well, when you defeat death, in this apex of history, the cross and the resurrection, when that occurs and you win, when you conquer, you're king. So at the cross, when he died and at the resurrection, when he rose, 
His kingship was affirmed. In fact, let me just say to you this. I think the Jews and the Romans had it partially right when they labeled him king of the Jews. That actually was correct. Do you know that? They just missed it by a word. He's actually king of the earth. But make no mistake, he is king. And the cross affirms that. As he dies, gives his life for nations, language, tribes, and tongues, and then is raised by the Father. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. There seems to be some some sense here in which the millennium, the future reign of Christ, maybe the Philippians 2 mindset of like, that one day every knee will bow, every tongue confess that Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There seems to be something here happening that, man, the kingdom of God will one day arrive in its full form. It'll be consummated. And at that point, even those who can't even keep us alive, they'll find the glory of the kingdom. It's an interesting phrase here in which God's kingship, Christ's kingship, is painted in a beautiful way. And this is only because of the cross. Because... Christ was willing to be forsaken for three hours by God for you. The whole earth now, nations, languages, tribes, and tongues can enjoy the forgiveness offered by God the Father through belief in the Son. In verse 30 and 31 Maybe this is my favorite portion. I find several that I keep. Just <laughs> I love this chapter. Look at what he says here. Because not only is the cross beautiful for what it accomplishes, God's salvation, for what it affirms, God's kingdom. But notice this. It is beautiful because of what it proclaims. That God is satisfied. And, he, and he's satisfied eternally. Look at this. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. So you have this picture of here's David writing this. And he's going to tell the ones coming after him, right? That's not enough. It says here, they shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn. So here's David, those coming after him, and yet those still to be born. And what will all of these generations say? What is the perpetual praise going up from God's people across the globe? Here it is. He has done it. Amen, church? Then when you see this last verse 31, he's done it. You should write in there, it is finished. And what a, an incredible change has happened in this chapter in 31 verses. When at first, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Oh, I see what's happening. God is doing something that will be proclaimed for generation after generation, perpetually, that he is eternally satisfied. He has done it. This is why the cross is both terrible And beautiful. Watch this, church. Because at the cross, God has done it. He has dealt with your sin. And that took three hours of a terrible forsaking by God of his son. And yet, the cross is beautiful. Because at the cross, God dealt with your sin. (laughs) And you can now be forgiven. Not just you. But anyone on the globe, and not just anyone on the globe now, those in this generation, the next generation, and the one even after them, 
Isn't the gospel glorious? Isn't the cross, yes, a terrible but beautiful thing? This is why we say that the cross, and I'll just kind of show it to you in a single sentence. It's the one place. It's, it's, it's the ultimate evidence of God's pure, compassionate character and sure, confident salvation. It's God's holiness that makes it such a terrible place temporarily. And it's God's holiness that makes it such a beautiful place. See, it's, it's his character and uh, his salvation all displayed at the same place. It's at the cross we see just how sinful we are and yet how loved we are at the same time. It's the only place you will ever experience true satisfaction for your soul and perpetual praise from your life. This is what Psalm 22 says. Which is why there is no better news today on this Palm Sunday than the last four words of this chapter. He has done it. (laughs) Will you say those with me? He has done it. And was it terrible? Oh, without a doubt. If you look lightly upon the cross, if you have a surfacy, shallow understanding of what occurred at the apex of history, at the real point of Christ's coming, if all that took place in the coming week that we're going to remember, Passion Week, if all that took place in that is a blip on your radar, your spiritual temperature is at an all-time low. Something is wrong, church. Yes, it's an ugly, rugged cross, but it's on that very cross that something beautiful and permanent and eternal has occurred. God's wrath has been satisfied. He is no longer silent. He actually hears and he actually helps. How do those coexist together? It's beyond my understanding and ability. I'm just thankful they do. Amen? Have you been to the cross? Have you embraced that terrible, beautiful place where Jesus was murdered but God was satisfied. Are you clinging to the old rugged cross where Jesus gave his life and shed his blood so that you could be forgiven? This is what Psalm 22 points to. And it does it by pointing through David. Now before I ask you a question, let me see if there's any that you have for me. No questions today. Okay, if you have some after the fact, feel free to use that same number. I get those in the week and can respond to you personally as well. So I have a question for you. If this chapter, and it does by the way, if this chapter speaks of not only in the present view of David, how God helped David, but in the prophetic view, how God helps his people. If the the sense is, wow, that's how God helps us fundamentally at the cross, but, but no doubt through Jesus, if that's how God helps us, even when we feel forsaken, 
Like God is silent and we're lonely and we're distressed, but we can be sure God will be there and the cross is the evidence of that. Then I ask you a question. Where has God helped you? And I'm looking for like some answers. Not out loud, but I'm looking for you to begin to engage with me mentally here. Where has God helped you? Let's just start with saving grace. Where was it when you had that Tom Urban moment? As he describes Tom's, and I guess when I see in the video, and there's no one Tom well, it's going to be at his house, that address, that picture. Somewhere in that encounter, God reached in in his irresistible grace and saved Tom Urban. And he understood who Jesus was and what Jesus did. And like he said, it was like a light switch. Suddenly, I was different. And the next morning, he had a thirst he could not quench. Where did God help you? Where did your life intersect with the cross? And where did God's saving grace change you forever? Think about that place for a moment. I'm not asking for a date. I'm not asking for a specific you know, moment. But I, I do tend to think... When God saves people, 1 Corinthians says that it is content sensitive. There's a specific set of beliefs we believe, right? That Christ died for our sins, was buried, and rose again. It's also contact sensitive. The gospel is both. It's content sensitive and it's contact sensitive. In other words, Paul said to them, when you took your stand on the gospel, Paul seemed to kind of imply, if, if not so much state, that there is a point in time in which you say, in which you understand, comprehend, I believe. Now, I don't think Paul was saying seconds and dates, perhaps, but I think there's a general time frame in which we know, yeah, I was this, and now I'm this. I did believe that. I've repented, now I believe this. I was lost, now I'm found. I was unsaved, now I'm saved. Does that make sense? Just kind of nod if you're following me. So that's my question. When? Where? Like, is that place in your mind right now where God helped you? Where Psalm 22 was like, wow, I'm, I don't even hear God. I feel forsaken. I'm lost. And suddenly you're like, oh, I wasn't forsaken. Jesus took my sin for me. I get it. And God has now rescued me. Where's your, what's this word now? Where's your Ebenezer? Todd, where'd you pull that word out of? I pulled it out of our last study, remember? We're going through 1 Samuel. Do you recall what the Ebenezer was? It was the place where God helped. And Israel had been away from God. He had appeared silent to them, remember? But suddenly, in their repentance and coming back to God, he helped them. And they set up a mound of stones. And they said, this is where God helped us. And they said, this is our, say it with me, Ebenezer. I'm asking you this morning, Where's your Ebenezer? Where's the place God helped you? Now, we can say the cross for sure. But I'm not asking you to go back to the Middle East, to this place of the skull. Where did your life intersect with the cross? And where did God meet you at your biggest point of need? Maybe it was in that saving grace moment. That's when he saved you. Or maybe it was when he revealed his sanctifying grace. Maybe you knew you were a Christian You'd already trusted Christ. You took your stand on the gospel. There's a place in your life when, when God just met you in a, 
a point of growth and, and you just begin to blossom. The gospel flourished like never before. Maybe that's where God helped you. Maybe it's in his sustaining grace. A deep trial. And God gave you the grace to endure. So I do mean the cross is where God helps us. But I do also think that for some that there are other moments where God helps us. I don't want you to think, I just have to think of the place I was saved. I'm asking you to think in general terms as well. Where has God helped you? Where has Psalm 22 proven true in your life? There may be some here this morning. And you're saying, I think it's here in this room right now. (laughs) Maybe you came in here and you think it's by accident. I just kind of coincidentally showed up here and there's no coincidences. You're here on purpose by design. And perhaps the best news you could have heard today was this right here. That though your sins be as scarlet, they can be white as snow. Why? Because Christ has borne them. He has taken them. He suffered what you should have suffered. And now God offers salvation to those who believe in the name of Jesus Christ. Maybe you've never believed in Jesus Christ. You're a good person. You're polite. You're kind. But you kind of had a pluralistic view. You're just kind of like, well, I think it's up to everybody's individual taste. Or maybe you thought it was about how good you could be. The Bible says that no one sees the Father but through Jesus. And this morning, maybe this is the place where you finally realize, oh, if that's what it means to be saved, then this morning, I'll put my trust and faith in Jesus Christ as the only way to be saved. This will be your light switch moment. This is when everything will change. This is the place God helps you. I don't know. Could be. If that's you this morning, I would just urge you to pray right now and say, God, save me through the work of Jesus on the cross. I believe Jesus was your son and that he died and rose again. And you said in Romans that if anyone will believe in their heart that Jesus Christ is God and that you raised him from the dead, you would save them. So God, this morning, I believe that save me by your grace. And this may be your Ebenezer, 317 Southeast Magazine Road, when your life on the cross intersected. I'll tell you when mine was. I wrote it down on one of these rocks. I wrote down Chattanooga. And I wrote down 1978, April. That's where God helped me. I could put further notes like Chauncey Goode Auditorium. That's where our church met. Highland Park, Baptist Church. uh, Under the balcony. Red Pew. Sitting next to my youth pastor. I could put all kinds of things. But the point is... The most important place God has helped me was that day as a 14-year-old kid when I realized I was lost. And though I had a really good home and a good set of parents, had good siblings, was in a good church and a good youth group, I was on my way to hell. And God showed me the pride and lostness of my life. And I just said, God, I need to be saved. That's my Ebenezer right there. This Passion Week, I'd like for us to build an altar. I'd like for us to build an Ebenezer of our church. You know that? 
And we're going to do that this week. We're going to give you some rocks when you leave today. Keep them from your toddlers. <laughs> right? Find a sharpie between now and Friday and write on your rock where God helped you. It may be that you'll write like me, the place where God saved you. That'd be awesome. It may be a place where God sanctified you. Or it may be a place where God sustained you. In any of those cases, it's always God's grace that helps us. And God's grace is always seen in the face of Christ. Are you with me? I just want to see this week, I, I want to see all the the places that we're going to pile up on Friday around the cross and then give glory to God. This is where God helped us. This is where we felt forsaken. We thought God was silent. It seemed like he wasn't hearing us, but the truth was he proved faithful just as he always has. And now I will praise him, not just in my generation and not just in my local area, but I'll praise him around the world in this generation and the next and the one after that. This is how committed we want to be to to the work of God in our midst. So here's the deal. In a few minutes, Josh will be leading you, and he'll have you come and just get a stone. It'll be after communion, so don't worry. You've not got to hold a bread and a cup and a rock. Okay, we're not going to ask you to do that. We'll take communion a little bit. Towards the end, we're just going to have you come and get a rock. So today, you take the rock. Friday, you bring the rock back to our Good Friday service. And there's a time in there in which we're going to just have one cross up here and we're going to bring the rock, we're going to lay it to the cross and we're going to build an altar as a faith family full of rocks that say this is where God helped us. Then Sunday when you come back, it'll be displayed and we'll celebrate together all the ways and places God helped us. Amen? That's what we're going to do this week. That's how we're going to remember how God helps us. Primarily, at the cross, no doubt, amen, when he saves our souls and satisfies us. But then all along that journey, as God is faithful, even when at times we feel forsaken. I trust you'll join us in this. Take a rock and then find a Sharpie this week and write on there the place where God helps you. You'll see some testimonies Friday of people live here at the Good Friday service. And they're going to share with you where God helped them. You'll see some people on video next Sunday where God helped them. I want our church this week to realize that the cross of Christ in all of its terror stands as the one place where God has helped us the most. Amen? And that's why it's so beautiful.